for future economic trends. This is BizTalk. Well, welcome everyone to BizTalk. I'm Michael Wong. Our focus today, China's government work report. Now, the government work report is delivered every year by the Chinese premier during the annual meeting of China's top legislature and top political advisory body. Now, the work report reviews the government's economic and social work in the previous year, and in this case, the past five to ten years, as well as lays out a blueprint for economic priorities in the current year and beyond. So, to unpack the main messages from this year's government work report, we are joined online by Dr. Xia Lue, who is the Asia Chief Economist at the global and Spanish banking giant BBVA. Dr. Xiao, welcome to the program. Thank you. And joining us here in the studio, we have Victor Gao, who is the Chair Professor at Soochow University. Thank you. Dr. Gao, welcome. We also have Raymond Zhang, who is the Executive Director at CBRE China. CBRE, of course, a global commercial real estate services and investment giant. And we have Professor Liu Baocheng, who is the Dean at the Center for International Business Ethics at the University of International Business and Economics, UIBE. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on this program. Dr. Gao, I want to start with you because when I'm listening to the government work report and reading through the main messages sent, I feel like something that stood out to me was the consistency of economic policy from the work report either from the 20th Party Congress to last year's Central Economic Work Conference that we heard in December, and now to this year's government work report, that consistency and constancy of economic policy from the world's second largest economy. Talk to us about that in terms of the significance for the global economy as we live in quite an uncertain world these days. The work report for uh, this CPP uh, for this MPC session is very important. He not only talked about the work of 2022, mm. but also the work for the past five years. China uh, deals with challenges and circumstances almost on a daily basis. However, if we look at China's situation ever since 1978, it has been a continuous process of opening up to the outside world and continuing yeah. to reform. In that sense. I think there is a lot of continuity in what China has been doing since 1978. Yeah. And the past year or the past five years or the past 10 years are more or less a continuation of this macro policy of continuing with the reform and the opening to the outside world, even though every mm. year we are faced with new challenges and new tasks. Professor Liu, let me come with you because when I was listening through the government work report, just like Dr. Gao was mentioning, uh, there was a lot of review in terms of the economic work for the past five years as well, and even for the past 10 years. Now, usually the government work report reviews the past year's economic uh, development, but why do you think it's important to take stock of China's economic development in the past five years? Today's performance is the accumulative effect of the uh, past uh, years of uh, performance and deliveries anyway. So therefore, mm. when we look at the past, we know where are we now and uh, where are we heading into. So uh, over the past five years, we did experience such a bumpy road for China's uh, overall growth, not only in terms of economic growth, but uh, in a holistic way. Uh, and China was really there to strike a balance between ecological conservation versus uh, economic growth. And this is really a very delicate balance because uh, uh, tilting to each side may create more of the social problems. And the, uh, the other is that China is uh, going for high quality growth. So it's really a painstaking effort because uh, 
you know, people are used to the old way of operation and uh, more of the human capacity need to be upgraded. Mm. And uh, also that uh, some of the uh, old fashioned operation needs to be phased out on a uh, uncertain cost to, to some businesses. And then we also face the global headwinds uh, when geopolitics, uh, you know, you, uh, such as the uh, Ukraine crisis and uh, um, the uh, deteriorating bilateral relationship between the two biggest economies. So all of these headwinds really are there to actually to reaffirm China's resolve to further open its door, to mm. go for high quality growth and to cater more to the people's needs. Mm. So therefore, uh, right now, uh, when the uh, pandemic is almost pushed behind uh, uh, with uh, more of the opening uh, for the economy, and I think more for social, uh, for the uh, social opinion and social psychology. So uh, we do see a rising vibrancy of the Chinese economic and the social and even political performance. Dr. Xia, I want to come to you. High quality development, I feel, is something that China says also on a very, very consistent basis these days. And for example, when you hear economists abroad or when you hear analysts and policymakers abroad, uh, we don't usually hear the attribution of high quality attached to development. If you could explain to our international audience a little bit more, what does China mean when it specifically talks about high quality in describing growth and development? Uh, yes, I think uh, this uh, high quality, they have a lot of the meanings. In particular, at this moment, I think uh, uh, China, they want to push forward the economy not as before, just uh, focus on these uh, headline figures, but rather they would prefer a growth more sustain sustainable, right? That means mm. uh, it's more environmental sustainable, it's more inclusive. And also, I think uh, when we talk about this one, that means uh, we want to have a growth, but uh, at less cost in terms of this uh, pollution, in terms of for this uh, uh, wealth disparity, in terms of, uh, of this, uh, 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 we can see these uh, distortions because we want this growth to continue. Maybe for the next uh, 10 years, 20 years, we don't just see one or two years, we have a high figures and then we will solve a lot of problems. In particular, I think uh, for at this moment, I think uh, we would like to see a growth with uh, less debt accumulation. Because uh, now if you look at uh, the balance sheet of many uh, corporates, I think they suffer from this uh, debt problem. So in future, we want uh, a good growth figure, but uh, we want to accumulate less debt. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the GDP growth target. I think this is something that the world is watching for the world's second largest economy. The target, of course, now is around 5% for 2023 growth. Uh, that would put China's economy then at uh, over 18 trillion US dollars if China can grow at that kind of uh, pace for 2023. Give us some overall thoughts in terms of this economic growth target. Yeah, I think that this target is exactly what I anticipated. And uh, I know that in the market, people think maybe they, to some degree, uh, this target uh, underestimated the, the, the power, the potential of the Chinese GDP. I agree with them on point that after this pandemic, we do have a lot of the pent up demands. So that means the real GDP outturn this year might be a little bit higher than this 5% target. But the thing is, uh, if we, we need to know that uh, uh, the Chinese economy, they are still subject to uh, some very serious challenges, 
not only for our domestic one, but also have this uh, international one. The first one, if you look at the US and the Europe, now I think uh, after this uh, interest rate hike the last year, now they face uh, increasing risk of recession. So we don't know to what extent this uh, recession will be. But uh, the thing is, uh, we need to be careful about our external sector. Although our internal sector can expect to have a very strong recovery, but the external sector, we are facing higher risk. Uh, I think that's the first point. Secondly, uh, even our domestic sector, they are not evenly, I, I like to say, they're not evenly facing this uh, recovery. Uh, for some sector like a uh, property sector, this year we can expect some recovery. At the same time, I think uh, over the past uh, three years, uh, we see fast rise of the overall debt level in the economy. It's normal because during pandemic, the government need to borrow more, to spend more, to maintain the stability of the uh, economy. But the point is, uh, we cannot allow this one continue forever, right? So this year, we need to be careful. Maybe we shouldn't list uh, that high uh, target for growth. At the same time, we need to strike a balance between this uh, 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 growth and the financial risks. So that's why I think this uh, 5% is very uh, appropriate. In terms of uh, preventing systemic crisis in China's financial sector, preventing major risks from blowing up as well. That is, is always, that has always been an economic priority for China. How strong is China's financial system right now in terms of absorbing shocks uh, to its system? And how do you see financial regulation evolving in the past few years to really not only protect financial intermediaries, but also to protect households and consumers as well? Uh, yes, I think the Generally, if you look at the, the banking sector and this uh, uh, the entire financial system, I like to say China, they still have a strong capacity to deal with these uh, external shocks. Uh, in particular, if you look at the, the capital base of the banking sector, in particular, these uh, big banks, they are still in a very good shape. I think the challenge part is on the smaller enterprises. And uh, uh, now I think that they already enhance the regulation on these uh, smaller lenders for these uh, rural and the uh, city uh, banks. I think now they have more uh, regulations on, on them to make, ensure these uh, kind of uh, uh, events, okay, some even the default events will not spin over to the entire uh, the financial system. I think that they have done a very good job, but the, the problem is uh, if you, you look at uh, the global environment, okay, the now we have facing high interest rate environment uh, for the US, for, for Europe, I think that they could have some pressure on our interest rate. So that means we need to maintain relatively prudent monetary policy to ensure these external shocks won't affect our domestic financial sectors. I think that's number one. Secondly, I think that at the same time we are facing uh, the, the financial sector, they are facing the competition of the fintechs. Now we need to uh, strike the balance to ensure this kind of a competition, they will uh, benefit the entire economy. They will uh, push the financial institutions to lend more to the real economy. I think this one is, uh, is kind of the art. 
they need to strike the balance. I want to get your take on the private sector here in China because the government work report spoke about unwavering support for, of course, the public sector, but also the non-public sector. There are uh, 90%, over 90% of market entities here in China are the private sector, and they contribute to 50% of overall tax revenues and 80% of urban, uh, urban employment. What did you glean, perhaps, in the work report in terms of further support for the private sector in 2023 and beyond. Yeah, I'm very glad to see that uh, the government they put a lot, a lot of uh, emphasis on this part, the private sector. Because uh, if you look at uh, the past experience, uh, if the Chinese uh, private sector is booming, the the, the economy is very good. Mm. Okay, that's the experience. Uh, in particular, for this year, I think that unemployment uh, problem need to be solved by mainly by these uh, private sectors because. Uh, uh, many private sectors, they are in this uh, service sector and they can observe a lot of uh, unemployment. And at this moment, we have a target to create uh, uh, 12 million new jobs for this year. So I think that the private sector, they need to shoulder, I think, the majority of this target. So that's why I think uh, uh, this uh, private sector is very important for China. Raymond, I want to come to you. What were you looking out for from a commercial real estate perspective, from CBRE's perspective uh, in the two sessions? Right. Uh, the two sessions is, is actually a hot topic for real estate uh, uh, field, the industry, right? And mm. from a real estate perspective, I think well, the economics is recovery. It's on the way. And uh, I probably will put in uh, into three angles. Firstly, we all witnessed during the Chinese New Year, the retail business is actually recovered already. And we see, uh, actually, I bring my family to uh, Guilin, Guangxi province, right? One mm -hmm. is the hot choice for travelers. And uh, the hotel cost is actually doubled. And uh, uh, flight tickets is very expensive than usual. And uh, you see long queues outside every uh, restaurant, popular restaurants. And those signs actually show the retail uh, business is back online. And uh, according to the data, box office and catering revenue is actually surpassed the, uh, the same period of the 2019, mm. while the uh, passenger trips reached also 90% of the total four years ago. Mm. And according to CBRE's uh, retail uh, survey, uh, there will be 70% uh, of uh, brands new, uh, open new stores in China this year. So they all have very good hope for this yeah. market. And uh, from resi uh, residential uh, uh, perspective, uh, as the uh, central uh, government already released several measures, what we so-called uh, three arrows to support and uh, and uh, help the uh, uh, financial situations of the uh, uh, developers market. So I believe that, that uh, the supply will be uh, from the supply side will be have a healthier market than before. Yeah, real estate is not only people where people buy things and where people live. It's also very uh, well people have the uh, work in the office space and uh, also business activities take take place right mm -hmm. so uh, as a CBRE we uh, we always think about like how to bring this to office and industrial market so office and the industrial market has already bottomed out according to our research and we will have a very good year this year but it will take some time probably from the second half of the year rather than you know or immediately yeah in fact Professor Liu, because the government work report said that by the end of last year, China's uh, investment in terms of research and development as a percentage of GDP is now above 2.5%. That's close to the OECD average. Uh, it's not there yet. And it's actually higher than a lot of OECD countries, but perhaps it's not at the OECD average level yet. Maybe give our audience a general sense of where China stands when it talks about innovation, because 
China has made it very clear the development path forward will be innovation driven. Yeah. Well, China uh, is now leading the world in terms of the uh, patent and IP uh, application uh, with the uh, uh, WIPO, uh, the World uh, Intellectual Property Organization. Mm. And China is also a leading author in many of those uh, top journals. So these are really wonderful stuff. And now we power more money for uh, innovation. But uh, there are uh, two areas that uh, we need to have more deliberation. One is that uh, uh, how we can really uh, best utilize the R&D resources, uh, particularly in the breakthrough technology, it's not really there that uh, you have uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, institutions doing the same thing. So they need really to, st to stack up, uh, arrange in a letter uh, approach instead of everyone doing uh, on the same level. Uh, the other is that uh, how we can really uh, you know, be calm enough so that we can, in uh, we can invest more into the upper stream from uh, STEM education mm. to uh, basic sci uh, fundamental science research instead of uh, you know, the, uh, pumping too much money onto the application side. Dr. Gao, did you want to add something? I think uh, we need uh, a framework, including several things. One is a huge amount of capital to be invested in R&D. Yeah. Secondly, a large pool of talents. And in that sense, you know, every year China graduates about 10 million college graduates, about you know, very high percentage of them have engineering degrees. So yep. you have an increasingly large pool of talents. Mm. And many of these talents have already achieved great success. Some of them are still on the uh, upside movement, for example. And, and then you need to have a framework of regulatory transparency, incentives, etc. And then, most importantly, you need to have a very large market yeah. to provide all kinds of demand which would stimulate the yep. need for uh, innovation. I think China is one of the very few countries in the world today which possess all these things, very deep pocket funding, mm -hmm. increasing large pool of talents, and then a framework of pro-business and incentives for innovation, uh, patent applications, as you mentioned, and then a very large market yeah. demanding for better ways of doing things, technological breakthroughs, etc. Now, when you combine all these ingredients together, I'm very much convinced that China will yeah. make it. Dr. Gao, I want to come to you and, and talk real quick about China's green transition and perhaps what that means for uh, the entire world when, when, when China, at this kind of scale, really picks up in its green transition. That could have a lot of spillover effects for Absolutely. the global economy in its transition to net zero. We believe we want to promote economic development, but we also want to protect the environment. We need to have both, rather than one versus the other. This yeah. is a complete reversal of our convictions. And I think this gives the reason why the Chinese people will do whatever that is necessary to make sure that our economic development will not be promoted at the expense of climate and environmental protection. Right. And we want to really achieve both goals together. And both goals need to be complement each other rather yeah. than 
excluding each other. And this is the new way of promoting green development in our country. Dr. Gao, the work report also said that, and I'm quoting from the report, China should promote R&D for the clean and efficient use of coal uh, and move faster to develop a new energy system, new energy system we can understand. But I'm assuming because China is such a large economy, there needs to be a transition period, right? So you mentioned energy security. Um, coal right now is, is still quite an important part of the Chinese economy, even though over a quarter of China's uh, energy is now clean energy. How do you interpret that statement? Then? Absolutely. Uh, China's coal reserve is the largest in the world, and coal traditionally accounted for more than 75% of the Chinese energy mix. It's mm. coming down very rapidly. Yeah. I think uh, our goal is to push it below 50%. Uh, on the other hand, I think for China, with such an important coal reserve, we need to come up with better technologies, especially clean use of coal. Yeah. Uh, if we can make that major breakthrough, uh, uh, taking care of all the other related issues, of course, then we can achieve green development while maintaining a significant role for coal going forward, mm. rather than, like some other countries, banning coal outright. Mm. I don't think China will be able to ban coal because it's such an important part of the energy mix in China, even as of today. Yeah. And I would say even 20 years later, 50 years later, coal will still need to play a very important yeah. role. Professor Liu, I want to come to you and talk about another element from the government work report, and that's food security. So uh, last year, China's grain output was over eight, uh, 680 million metric tons. Um, 650 million metric tons, or over that amount, over 650 million metric tons. That is the target for grain output for this year. And I want to get your thoughts on uh, China's efforts to ensure food security. What lessons do you think the world can draw when it comes to you know, feeding a large population as a developing economy and with less arable land? There are two dimensions to it, food security and also food safety, which has to do with the quantity and with the quality. In the first place, you need to have uh, sufficient arable land to be able to produce it. And second, uh, you need to increase productivity. And third, you really need to ensure uh, the safety, the uh, capability use of pesticides and uh, fertilizers uh, in order to have a sustainable agricultural business. So uh, right now, China is really doing a uh, stellar performance in that way is showing uh, it really can be considered as a best practice. Uh, one is really to preserve the uh, red line of uh, arable land. And actually over the past three years, we have seen a lot more expansion of arable land uh, by the improving the quality of uh, those deserted places. And two is that uh, we have been you know, building more of the greenhouses on a scientific basis uh, over even desert areas. So that's uh, uh, something very important. And then also we utilize more of the renewable energy like wind and solar to support the Chinese agricultural production. Mm. And uh, this year I, uh, I see that in the government work report, we put more emphasis on building the Chinese strategic seed banks, mm. uh, where from the uh, upper stream, how can we really streamline the better control in terms of security and safety of uh, the total production. So I think the, in the end, it is uh, also important to uh, restructure the operational mode uh, in the Chinese agricultural area because uh, you know, we used to achieve a lot by dividing those uh, 
uh, you know, land into small pieces to households. And now it is time to uh, voluntarily, you know, the, uh, mobilize more of the land so that we can introduce more mass production for higher productivity per capita. And so this is something that uh, uh, requires a lot more changes. And that is actually the essence of the Chinese rural revitalization program. So what are the next steps then for rural revitalization, Professor Liu? Because this is such an important part of China's modernization process as well. We always talk about China's urban centers, but we sort of forget that there are still some 500 million people that live in China's uh, countryside. We see still right now on average about 10 million people moving to urban areas, but a lot of these people are gonna stay in the rural areas. Uh, we need to really uh, build skill and scope mm. on the Chinese uh, rural operation which means that we need to introduce more of the capital into that area to collectivize the operational level. Um, but uh, we are not really trying to force those individual households to give concessions, but rather they can really voluntarily to contribute uh, in the form of equity owner uh, in a, a new entity. So where you know, um, big machines like harvesters or you know, more than uh, irrigation system can be uh, there to play out instead of on small, like three acres of uh, small plots. Yeah. So, and then also that uh, how we can really streamline the, uh, the logistic and distribution system. Raymond, I want to come to you because we talked a lot about development. What does China's development path ahead, its unique path towards modernization, well, I think, first of all, uh, modern China is definitely attractive to MNCs, multiple mm. multinational corporations, right? And so uh, multinational corporates, they keep investing in China because they hold a long-term confidence on China's market. Yeah. And they all say that we, we heard the next China is China. They all believe that, right? Right. So the, I, I, we expect, uh, well, we expect the further investment, uh, doing a further investment to China's market, and uh, especially in R&D for innovation and also uh, international national or national regional hubs right mm. and and so about for that's the for for mnc parts and for domestic uh, uh corporate corporates and companies they when they have a chance they will look at the uh, the same international standard from the mncs and uh, uh, that's where we can introduce what what we have been served the, the mnc's experiences and uh, and the uh, standards and precise and procedures and we introduce all those to the domestic companies to make sure we we speak on the same page and when we, we're doing the same same thing right and mm. uh, follow our same rules and regulations thank you so much gentlemen for a fascinating discussion uh, victor gao dr victor thank gao you. chair professor at suchao university raymond uh Zhang, who is the executive director at cbre china thank you as well as professor liu baocheng from university of international business and economics and of course uh, dr xia Le, uh, asia chief economist at bbva joining us from Hong Kong. Thank you all for your insights. Well, despite economic headwinds at home and an increase in global uncertainties abroad, China's economy has shown the power of its resiliency. I believe the long-term structural trends underpinning China's development have not changed. In fact, given China's development goal of becoming a mid-level developed economy by 2035, leveraging the power of innovation to drive high-quality development and its unique path toward modernization, I would argue, that the structural factors underpinning China's growth have become even more favorable, which means massive opportunities for everyone around the world. Thanks for joining us here on BizTalk. I'm Michael Wong. We'll see you again next time. <laughs>